Jesus crucifixion. There's two dates that are offered. April of 30 and April 3rd of AD 33. Well, on December 8th, that's why I had it messed up my notes, 1941, then President of the United States FDR said the following, Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. December 7th, 1941 was indeed a day that will forever live in infamy. And as we've looked at briefly, there have been many other infamous dates in American history, let alone human history, and they're indelibly printed on the human psyche. And the greatest, I would argue, is April 3rd, A.D. 33, the day Jesus Christ of Nazareth was crucified in Jerusalem. It was the greatest day of infamy, not only the world over, but in all of human history. And the night preceding it was no different. It was a night that will live in infamy. It was filled with great treachery, great hatred, and unbelievable brutality. This morning we come to our third of five messages in our series, Instead of Me, and our driving idea has been the events surrounding the trial of Jesus are recorded to show us that we are actually the ones on trial. As Coach said this morning, the only thing Jesus was guilty of was loving us. In these stories, we should see us, me, you. The first week, we saw that we're Judas. We've betrayed Jesus. We've all been willing to sell him out for a price and the same reasons Judas did. Last week, Jimmy preached and showed us how we're like Peter. We, too, have a wrong understanding of our own condition of kingdom power. And this week, we're going to look at the four primary characters involved in Jesus' trial itself. They represent us and show us four ways people today still respond to Jesus. And first, what we're going to look at is how Matthew tells the events of Jesus' trial in such a way it's as plain as the nose on our face that the whole thing was a sham. So as we see Jesus being tried for crimes he didn't commit, and not once, not twice, but three times was proclaimed innocent by the highest power in the land, were simultaneously enraged over the injustices, but ought to be elated that he was accused for me. And so we'll look at the six injustices of Jesus' trial, and then we'll look at the four kinds of people that were exposed by his trial. So if you'll stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word, starting Matthew 26, into 27, starting in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is that that struck you? Let's get down to 
chapter 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought, bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so, but he was accused by the chief priests and elders. He gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. You ought to listen to your wife. She starts giving you good advice. Amen. Amen. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they, at, and they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The word of God and the people of God, and the power of the Spirit of God, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you so much for allowing us to come today and just to fellowship and encourage one another, bear one another's burdens. Thank you so much for the, the song ministry that we've had this morning, Father, and how it's just ministered to our heart, to our minds. And so, Father, we pray. As we now allow your word to minister to us, Father, that you would just help us to set aside the daily cares of our lives. Father, pour your Holy Spirit out upon this place, that if there's one here that doesn't know Jesus, that it would convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But then, Father, we pray your Holy Spirit would teach us what you would have us to take today, that through it we can look more like Christ. And we ask this now in the wonderful, precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So let's look first at the six injustices of Jesus' trial. The first is that the timing was unjust. Look at verse 57 of Matthew 26. It says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Well, when did that take place? We have to rewind. In Matthew 26, 20, it says it was evening. In John 13.30, it says that it was night. 
If you remember in Matthew 26, uh, last week when Jimmy preached, three times the disciples fell asleep. In John 18.3, it says that Judas and the rest party came with lanterns and torches. I don't know about y'all, but I've never used a flashlight in the middle of the day. Maybe y'all? And in Matthew 26.46, Jesus said, Get up, the one who betrays me is at hand. That's because he could see the rest party coming from afar because it was dark and they had torches. So all of these verses point to the fact Jesus' trial took place in the middle of the night. In fact, Frank Morrison has a book, Who Moved the Stone? I'd encourage you to read it. It's an excellent book. It's a small little book, Who Moved the Stone? And he notes that it took place at a quote-unquote unprecedented hour. He said that there's strong justification for believing it could not possibly have been earlier than 11.30 p.m. By Jewish law, that was illegal. It was illegal to try a capital charge, a trial for life at night. Only trials for mercy could be conducted after sunset, which makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. And what was that to do? To protect the person who was accused. And so trials also were not allowed to take place on feast days. Well, what are we in the middle of? Passover. Because people are traveling, they're distracted, and so Jesus' trial occurs right in the middle of that. Think about it this way. It'd be like Jesus being arrested late Christmas Eve night and his trial's then held unannounced privately at 2 a.m. Let me ask you, would you want your trial to occur under those circumstances? No. You know why? Because you know that something sinister is afoot if they're conducting it in the middle of the night without any notice. So the timing was unjust. The second thing is that the due process was unjust. Who Jesus is before is the Jewish Sanhedrin. That's a council of the highest ranking Jewish officials. It was 70 in total. It's kind of equivalent to our Supreme Court. So when you hear Sanhedrin, think Israel's Supreme Court. Y'all know the Lady Justice statue? You know what I'm talking about? You may see it like in courthouses or courtrooms, Lady Justice, is blindfold, has a scale, and then has a sword. That points out what justice is to be. A blindfold because it's to be impartiality. Scales because it's to be objectivity, it's to weigh the evidence. And the sword to remind us that the courts do have authority. And so the Sanhedrin, Israel's Supreme Court, just as ours, was to exhibit impartiality and objectivity. They were listened to the prosecution and the defense and then impartially weigh the evidence fairly. Now listen to what took place in Jesus' trial. Mark 14, 55, it says the whole council were seeking testimonies against Jesus. A judge can't go out and seek witnesses. And then in Mark 14, 56, many bore false witness against him. What's the judge's responsibility to do when there's a bunch of false witnesses come up? Toss them. Throw them out. Matthew 26, 63, look at that. We read that earlier. But Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. You ever seen a judge just start taking over the question of the prosecuting attorney? Well, that's what happened. Mark 14, 59, it says not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. I mean, no judge is going to let their courtroom become a three-ring circus, is he? And then Mark, uh, Matthew 26, 
65 to 56, it says, what further need? What do you think? He deserves death. You ever seen them just pronounce sentencing right on the spot? Usually you read the news and it says such and such was guilty and their arraignment, their you know, sentencing will be what? Two weeks. And so as an illustration, many of us have heard of the Smollett case in Chicago, right? And you know that this past two weeks or so ago that the Chicago uh, prosecution attorney, the district attorney there, basically just dismissed the charges based upon they didn't feel there was evidence and also community service that had been done in the past. Now, I don't want to talk about you know whether he's guilty or not, but I want to uh, have us think about this for a second. Could you imagine the outrage in Hollywood and in Washington if when that the DA came and said, we're going to drop the charges, what would have happened is that the judge would have said, oh, no, 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 and started bringing in witnesses right then would have put Smollett under direct oath and said, are you guilty? I adjure you by God to tell us, are you guilty? Had allowed false witness after false witness, then started questioning Smollett himself, and then said, you know what? He's just guilty. Ten years prison for you right now. Guards, take him away. Could you imagine the outrage? That's exactly what happened in Jesus' case. Not only did that happen in Jesus' case, do you see any outrage amongst anybody that it happened like that? No. So the timing was unjust, the due process was unjust, third, the use of witnesses was unjust. What did the very law book the judges on the Sanhedrin were supposed to rule by say with regards to witnesses? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Because Exodus 20.16 says you shall not bear false witness. So number one, you're not to bear false witness. Deuteronomy 19, starting in verse 15. says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Isn't that the same in our case today? J-Rod, if you go to lock somebody up, are you going to lock them up based just on one shoddy testimony or are you going to go on two or three? If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. Why is that? So that people won't be bringing false charges. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And so that was what the law book told them. But here's what happened with regards or that. So the summary of their law book was this. No bearing false witness. No guilty verdict on one witness. It had to be two who agreed. Any false witness got the exact same punishment that they intended for the one they were falsely accusing. 
Now let's let the court recorder read back the facts of Jesus' trial. Matthew 26, 59-60. Look there. Back to Matthew 26 and verse 59 and 60. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward. In Mark 14, 55, it says they were trying to obtain testimony against Jesus and weren't finding any. In 56, many were given false testimony and the testimony was not consistent. In verse 59, not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. And then look at Matthew 26, 66. says, he says, what is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And so once the, tes- the witnesses' testimony had started breaking down, for the high priest to cross-examine Jesus was illegal. And they should have immediately acquitted him. And then not only that, you know what they should have done? They should have taken the people that had bared false witness and took them out and stoned them because that was what was the punishment for what they ultimately were going to charge Jesus on. Alright, so the timing, the due process, the use of witnesses were all unjust, and the conviction process was unjust. Think about how our Supreme Court hands down a decision. It's by vote, right? Something can pass 5 to 4, it can pass 7 to 2, it can pass 9 to 0. Israel's Supreme Court worked the same way. You'd have conviction, decision, that was supposed to take place by vote. So if the Jerusalem Times was reporting on the decision the next day, look at Matthew 26, 65. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. They didn't even put it to a vote. Even in cases in which someone makes a confession. J-Rod, if someone, if you're interviewing someone and they say, yep, I did it. Does that case still have to go to trial? Absolutely. You see, Jesus... Even if he would have said, I did it, they still didn't put it to a vote. They still didn't try. And so, not only that, the vote would have had to have been unanimous. Think about it. If someone goes to a trial for murder, are they going to convict them if it's 10 to 2 vote? If it's a 10 to 2 vote, it's what? A hung jury. It's got to be all or nothing. And we know at least Nicodemus would have probably, Nicodemus was on the Sanhedrin, he probably would have objected because of what he had said earlier in John 7. Not to mention Pilate's given a three-time not guilty verdict. Alright, fifth is the sentencing was unjust. So look again at verses 63 to 66 of Matthew 26. But Jesus remained silent. That's just remarkable to me. Because I'm going to tell you, if false witness after false witness after false witness come up accusing Buffy Cook of something. (coughs) They might have got the pre-Jesus Buffy Cook to rear its ugly head. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and come on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said he is utter blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. First off, according to those verses, what ultimate charge was Jesus convicted on? Blasphemy. You have heard His blasphemy. 
That was what he was convicted on. Alright, what sentence should Jesus have received based on the law book? According to Leviticus 24.16, stoning. Further, the judgment had to sit on the table for three days to see if any other witnesses would come forth and then and only then, if none others came forth, would they carry out the stoning. So is that what happened in Jesus' case? They sentenced him and what did they do? Immediately start taking him off to be bound and delivered to Pilate. And then not only that, as Coach read this morning in Luke uh, 23, turn there with me. So keep in your mind what he was ultimately charged with was blasphemy. And so what they should have went to Pilate and said, this man's committed blasphemy. Correct? Look at Luke 23, verses 1 and following. And then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man blaspheming. Is that what it says? We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Well, the lie detector determined that was a lie. Had Jesus ever told them don't give tribute to Caesar? In fact, he made them mad because he said, you give to Caesar what you ought to give to Caesar. In other words, you pay your taxes. And saying that he himself is Christ, the king, well, that's innuendo. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he said, well, you said so. Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. And so even if he had been found guilty of blasphemy, as I said, the sentence, the death, the sentence for that was stoning. What is it that they wanted? They wanted him crucified. And I thought about, y'all watch Karate Kid? One of my favorite lines, you remember in the tournament? And he comes up and he says, Sensei, I can beat this guy. And he says, I don't want him beat. Out of commission. In other words, I want him humiliated and beat. See, they didn't just want Jesus beat. They wanted Him out of commission. Because in their mind, anybody that hung on the tree was accursed by God in Deuteronomy 21. I'd never really thought about that till studying for this. That He should have died of stoning. Why did He die of crucifixion? A, because the power was in Rome's hands, but because the Jewish leaders were so bloodthirsty for Jesus to be humiliated, they wanted him to die on the cross. The last thing is Pilate's final consent was unjust. Look at Matthew 27, 18. I mean, Pilate might have been born at night, but it wasn't last night, amen. And he said, now in 18, he knew it was out of what? Envy that they delivered him up. So Pilate knows he's being manipulated and he reaches into his bag of tricks and he says, well, let's use this Jewish custom of release of a political prisoner and he's hoping and praying, pick Jesus, pick Jesus, pick Jesus. And what do they do? They pick the worst guy on the planet, Barabbas, and say, won't you let him go? 
and Pilate's heart must have sunk and to avoid a riot, he consented. And even after that, if you look at Matthew 27, 24, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and said, what? I'm innocent. This man is innocent. The problem was that Pilate was on very thin ice. The Jews hated Pilate because of several things that he had done in the past. And the Romans hated Pilate. In fact, the Roman emperor had told him, one more thing that you do and you're out of here. And so to save his own skin, he puts up a guilty man and he thinks just by washing his hands that he's going to be innocent of his blood. And Inferno, Dante depicts Pilate in the seventh circle of hell still trying to wash his hands clean of Jesus' blood. The bottom line is this, the whole trial was unjust. Why? Because God was demonstrating to us in no uncertain terms that Jesus was innocent. As Coach beautifully put this morning, the only thing he was guilty of was loving us. The second thing, any of you ever been betrayed? Any of you ever been mistreated, abused? Jesus knows exactly what you've been through. Amen? Which leads us to, let's look at the four kinds of people exposed by Jesus' trial. The first is the Sanhedrin. They are the threatened. Look at verse 18 again of chapter 27. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Why is it that they wanted to kill Jesus? I'm going to give you three things. First, they were threatened by his words. Look at Luke 11.45. Jesus has pronounced some woes on the Pharisees and one of the lawyers answered him and said, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. You see, the Sanhedrin like to think of themselves as the good guys. They were good little Jews. They were super self-righteous. And Jesus even acknowledged their self-righteousness. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Mark 5, 20, He said, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Yet Jesus insisted they were in fact the opposite. Matthew 23. I'll read some of the, You ought to know Matthew 23. The seven woes. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. He goes on to say, You tithe mint and dill and cumin and neglected the weightier matters of the law. You clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You're like whitewashed tombs. Hmm. <coughs> He says you've built the tombs of the prophets because you've killed them. You love the best seat in the synagogues. You're like unmarked graves. People walk over without knowing it. And so Jesus says, I'll have none of it. You look like good little Jews, but you have no righteousness whatsoever. And so Jesus' words took their self-righteousness and their pride and threw it out the window. So you know what they did? They killed him. They were threatened by his words and they were threatened by his actions. Look at John chapter 12. Verse 19. 
It says, The Pharisees said to one another, You see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Two different translations. One says the Pharisees took one look and threw up their hands and said it's out of control. The world's in a stampede after him. The other one says we've lost. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Jesus had exposed them as phonies and fakes. They didn't love people, did they? They didn't speak life. They hung heavier burdens on people than they had before. They didn't know the Scriptures will less teach them. And so Jesus is in a position that they desperately wanted. And you know what they did to remedy that? They killed Him. And then Jesus' person in John 8, 58, 59. He said, Before Abraham was, I am. Y'all remember me talking about dog and cat theology? You know the difference between a dog and a cat? That's why I like dogs, not cats. Cats out in the garage. <laughs> if you feed and water and bathe and take care of a dog, it licks your hand and it looks up at you and it goes, you feed me and you take care of me, you must be God. A cat, you feed it and you bathe it. If you ever bathe it, you might not survive it, right? <laughs> You feed it and you take care of it and all that. You know what it does? It claws your eyes out because it says, I'm God. That's, the, that's the kind of the joke of the difference between a dog and a cat. The Pharisees were cats. God had given them the Scriptures. God had chosen them out of all the nations. He had given them a king. He was going to give them a Messiah. And with all that, you know what they did? They look up at God and they go, you do all this for us, we must be God. And so when Jesus comes saying, no, you're not God, I am. You know what it then says in John 8, 59? They picked up stones to stone Him. <clears throat> and so on application, you know, it's easy for us to look at the Sanhedrin, maybe shake our heads and say, man, these guys were terrible. I would never have done that. But let me tell you, Jesus doesn't want absolute control of your life. He demands it. And you can leave here and you can turn it off and you can not think twice about it and you can pat me on the back when you walk out the door and say, great message this morning, brother. And I can't force you to choose. You can leave Jesus right here at 8923 Mount Carmel in your warm little padded pew out of sight, out of mind. But what if you were pushed to the point that it was either Jesus or control of your life? They cannot coexist. One has to go. Which one would you choose? Listen to this. In every heart there is a throne and a cross. The um, it's, If self is on the throne, Jesus must be on the cross. If Jesus is on the throne... Self must be on the cross. We're in one of two positions, like the Sanhedrin. We're either on our knees worshiping Him or we're standing with our fists saying, I want absolute control of my life. Crucify Him. Crucify Him because I won't crucify self. So that's the Sanhedrin. They were the threatened. Second is Pilate. He was the distracted. Look at chapter 27, verse 22. 
Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. He should have listened to what his wife said. As we already said, Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. Why wasn't he willing to act on it? Well, because other things were more important to him. And things are, some things are important, right? I mean, can't you sympathize? What if tomorrow, Marty, they said, you can either have your job here at Covenant High, or you can follow Jesus Christ. Which one do you want? Hmm. I think I may have shared with y'all that whenever we sold the Methodists, you know what one of my questions was to them? Many times I sit behind these doors with individual people, and if I feel the Spirit led to share a Bible verse or to witness to them about Christ, I do so. Am I going to be in trouble for that? Are y'all going to allow me the freedom to share Jesus inside those exam rooms? If your answer is no, that's perfectly fine. But I'm not signing that contract. Because there ain't no job on this planet not worth me telling other folks about Jesus. Amen. The pilot was stuck between a rock and a hard place. But he made the wrong decision, didn't he? <coughs> you know, sometimes bad things happen to us and at the time they seem terrible until something worse happens. I mean, UT lost in the Sweet 16. That's terrible. <coughs> then you find out that your kid is sick. Oh, your spouse is sick, and who cares if Tennessee won or lost? Amen? Or you lose your job. It seems terrible. Or you sit down, and the doctor says, We got the biopsy back, and it's cancer. Which one's worse? Or you stub your toe and you think, man, that's terrible to hurt till you break your leg. Amen. You know, I think a hundred years from now, all this garbage we fret over is going to be so insignificant in comparison to our standing before Christ. You know, Kevin, I love to play golf. I know you do too, right? You think Jesus cares about our handicap? What he does care about is our talent score. I told a kid this week in the office, I said, man, I don't know if I'm a one-talent guy, two-talent guy, or a five-talent guy, but the one thing I refuse to do is be a two-talent guy and then show up and say, well, Jesus, I buried it in the dirt. He cares more about my talent score than he does my golf handicap. How many of them, and so for you ladies, how many of you, if we said, well, we're just going to go over, Miss Brenda, we're coming over to your house right after service when Buffy finally gets done preaching in two hours. We're going to come to your house. And you'd start going, oh, man, did I clean up everything? And is this a mess and that a mess? And no, oh, I'm not going, no, 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 y'all can't come because my house is a mess. Sunroom's clean. <laughs> Sunroom's clean and going there. <laughs> Miss Cecilia got her out of it. She's down, Ladies, do you think Jesus cares more about the tidiness of your house or about what you're doing for Him? Pilate knows the truth and he's too distracted with things that really don't matter to consider Jesus, so he sentences him to
to die. And look at the testimony that has been for thousands of years now. Look at verse 19. His wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. God rest Dr. Easley so. I'll never forget him saying this in Theology 1. We had to memorize the Apostles' Creed, and part of that is this. I believe in Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And you know what Dr. Easley said in that class? He said, you know what I think old Pilate's wife heard in that dream? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. He said, I think she heard millions of Christians over thousands of years reciting the Apostles' Creed. An application. People ain't changed any in 2,000 years, have they? They still know the truth about Jesus and are too distracted to do anything with it. Why well, follow Jesus when I get older? You ever heard that one? I'll do it when my career is settled. Well, good luck with that. It ain't never going to be settled. Why well, follow him once I have kids? Well, then your life will really be a mess. You'll need him for sure then because that or Xanax or Prozac or something because you'll be crazy. For all of them. Jesus, Xanax, and Prozac. I'll do it once life is more stable. Well, tell me how that's going to work out for you because I think you'll make it to 190 years old and it still won't be stable. Amen? Or how about this one? I'll do it when I've had my fun. How foolish is that? Why would we trifle with the most precious possession we possess, our soul? Jesus said, what's it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? It didn't profit Pilate anything. Listen to what Dr. Spurgeon said. Listen to this. He said, Trifle not with Christ whose hands and feet were nailed to the cursed tree for sinners such as you. Trifle not with His precious blood for that is your only hope of redemption. Trifle not with the Holy Spirit for if He should leave you to perish, your case would be hopeless. Trifle not with the gospel. What would the lost in hell not give to hear another proclamation of mercy? Listen to this. He says, The devil does not trifle. He is very earnestly seeking your destruction. God and Christ and the Holy Spirit are not trifling with you, and I'm not trifling with you either. Mm. Pilate was too worried with other things to trifle with Christ and there's thousands, millions. There's people that you think of right now in your own life too distracted with other garbage to trifle with Jesus. Third is Barabbas is spared. Look at verses 20 and 21. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said... Barabbas. I'll bring up another movie reference, another one of my favorite movies, A Few Good Men. Mm -hmm. 
You remember the courtroom scene and Colonel Jessup says, we follow orders. We follow orders or people die. It's that simple. Are we clear? And Kathy says, yes, sir. Are we clear? Crystal. There's more, no more crystal of a picture of what is going on in this whole thing than right here. Barabbas. He's a bad dude. A very bad dude. He's a thief, a murderer, a domestic terrorist. He's hated by the Jews and the Romans. Heck, everybody hated him except himself. And that afternoon, by popular vote, Jesus died and Barabbas walked free. Now I want you to think from Barabbas' standpoint, you go from waking up that morning till you're ready to have your last meal because you're going on death row down the walk. You're going to be dead by sundown. And that night you're sitting down having dinner with your friends and you're still rubbing your wrists where the cuffs were. And this strange Galilean is hanging out on the cross where you should be. y'all remember Coach's words last week when we took the Lord's Supper? As he stood right here. I do, because his voice was cracking. And there was a tear in his eye. Because he said, Jesus, you took that cross in the middle. The one that I should have took. You know, young people, why we need the older people in the church? We need y'all in the church because we need y'all's energy. I mean, you know, if we could, like I said, just squeeze y'all and get it in a bottle and drink it like a five-hour energy shot, it'd do us a lot of good. But you know why we need older people in the church? We must have a multi-generational church, amen? Because we need their wisdom. What Coach said was exactly what Barabbas experienced. You know where Barabbas should have been hanging? on that second cross, the one in the middle. Barabbas was the first man in history who could say, Jesus took the cross for me. But he wasn't the last. Because just last Sunday, a man sat right here and said it. And I'll tell you this morning, and I'll speak for all of you, I ought to be the one that hung on that cross. In application, you know, any judge will tell you when you remain absolutely silent, when they're making accusation after accusation, you're guilty. J-Rod, you, I mean, you kind of see two versions, but if somebody's really guilty and you just start saying, man, you've done this and you've done this, and they hang their head and they just sit there and they don't say anything, you know they're guilty, don't you? It wasn't the case with Jesus. Why did he remain silent? Listen to this hymn. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned He stood. Sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. You know what's curious about Barabbas' story? We'll never find out how he responded. We don't know if you turned to Jesus and said, man, thank you so much. Thank you for taking that cross. You know why? Because his story is a question. 
question is, what will you do? Will you fall on, his, on your knees and worship and gratitude for what that man did on the cross for you? Or will you like thousands of people just pass on by and ignore what he did for you on the cross that he took it for you? Final person is Judas the despaired. Look at verses 3 to 5 of chapter 27. Verse 5, some of the most pitiful words in all of Scripture. He went and hung himself. I have this book I think I've passed on to Cassie. I don't remember even if I taught it at Liberty, but it's called Scary, Gross, and Weird Stories from the Bible. Think about some of the weird stuff in the Bible. You remember the story where Jael hammers Sisera's head, she drives a tent peg through his temple, killing him. I mean, you see some of these stories and you think, man, why in the world is that in the Bible? You ever wonder why Judas' suicide is in there? Let me ask you, just being serious, don't you think we probably could have done without knowing that was in there? So why is it there? I think first off is to show us that every, whatever person that rejects Jesus is really doing to themselves. It's either Jesus in life or self-destruction and death. Second, I think it's there to show us how unnecessarily tragic it was. Y'all ever watched a movie and it has the alternate movie ending? Mm-hmm. You know, movie can end and it can go like this. And you go, no, I don't like that one. And then it goes, well, it could end like this. And you go, yeah, that's, that's how I like I like that ending. Imagine if Judas had waited three to four days. Before he hung himself. He said, I'm just going to give God a chance. See what he's up to. Now he's done that. And here comes Peter running. Out of breath. And Judas says, Man, I'm just so depressed. I betrayed Jesus. There's, just, there's no coming back from that. And Peter says, you don't understand. There is. I betrayed him too. Judas, that's why he died. He forgave me. And if he can forgive me, he can forgive you too. Mm-hmm. But he wouldn't do that. You know why? Because he really didn't believe what Jesus had said. He didn't believe when Jesus said that I'm not coming for righteous folks. I'm coming for sick folks. He didn't believe when Jesus said the Son of Man comes to seek and to save the lost. He didn't understand on one hand he was so bad it was true Jesus had to die to save him. And on the other hand Jesus loved him so much he was glad to die for him. An application, maybe one of you is here this morning in the same place. Or maybe you know somebody that's in that place. I talked with Jennifer this morning right before service. She said, a young lady she knows said, God don't love me. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I don't care what you've done in your life. 
I don't care if you've been addicted to a bazillion drugs. I don't care if you have had the grossest immorality of a sexual nature you could fathom. I don't care if you've killed a thousand people. You are never outside the love of God. And that's what Judas forgot. And what's so tragic about Judas' story is when he hung himself, I guarantee you he still had the sweetness of that that Jesus had dipped into the cup and handed to him. The sweetness of Jesus' love was still literally on his lips. Brothers and sisters, there are people that we know and we have contact with every day that are distraught and despairant and despondent. And I guarantee you, ain't it true, J-Rod, that there's a high probability that you and I are going to go out this month on somebody that, like Judas, said, I just can't take it anymore. And I wonder if maybe one of us in this room might have contact with them in the next 30 days. I don't care what you've done. God still loves you. And God will forgive you if you'll just come to Him in repentance and faith. In closing, earlier we started with a quick game of Jeopardy. And speaking of that, how many of you have heard of double Jeopardy? I don't mean round two of the game we played earlier. Coach would have had all the money. He'd have been far ahead of us. You know, double jeopardy is the defense that prevents an accused person from being tried again on the same or similar charges or on the same facts. Actually, our U.S. Constitution prohibits it. You know who it doesn't stop? The devil. You see, the devil specializes in double jeopardy. Listen to this dream that Martin Luther had. He stood on the day of judgment before God and Satan was there to accuse him and Satan opened his books full of accusations and he pointed to transgression after transgression after transgression and he's just wearing him out with that finger. Luther, you are guilty. And as this is going on and on and on, Luther's heart sank. And then he said this and he turned to Satan and he said, there's but one entry which you have not made in your books. Satan says, oh yeah, what is that? Luther said, it is this, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sins. Mm -hmm. Old Slewfoot might specialize in double jeopardy, but our God, hallelujah, specializes in acquittals. Mm -hmm. April 3rd, AD 33, a night that will live in infamy in which he was tried for crimes he didn't commit and put to a cross that he didn't deserve so that you could be forgiven and enjoy an eternity with Him that you didn't deserve. Glory, hallelujah, we have the best defense attorney, not that money can buy, but that blood can buy. Amen? Amen. And I don't care how many times old Slewfoot comes in your life and tries to put you on trial, you just remind him that you've got the best defense attorney that blood can buy and your God specializes in acquittals and Romans 8.1 says there is now no condemnation for those who are found in Christ. And as Jesus said, if he sets a man free, 
three indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this time and this hour that you have given us to gather together and Father, just to come and worship you. Father, I pray today that what I have said, Father, what I have uh, stood in this pulpit, it is absolutely nothing other than that your son, Jesus Christ, was lifted up. Father, I pray he was glorified. Father, we just thank you so much that he was willing to suffer the injustices of this trial. Father, that like Barabbas, we could be spared. Father, I pray that if there's any person here today that is dealing with uh, any of the situations of the four people that we looked at this morning, that, Father, you would just speak life into them this morning and use your word. We know that your promise is it will not return void, and so we trust it to go forth and do the work in our lives that you would have it to do. That, Father, we could look more like Jesus. I pray as we come at this time of invitation, Father, that if there's anyone that needs to know Christ, that today would be the time, or if there's any other decision that needs to be made, that you would just convict minds and hearts now. For it's in Jesus' wonderful and precious name I pray. Amen. Page 308. Y'all stand and sing. <laughs> 